So I'm going to do uh, this class. The recording did not work originally, and so we're just going to do it this way. I'm going to do a special one-off recording of this. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time together. Thank you, Lord, for uh, watching over us. Uh, I pray that you'd be with us as we work our way through the heresy zone, through all the different heresies, that you would be our uh, guide and director, that your spirit would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so you can follow the slides. Uh, those are being sent out as well in a PDF form. So this is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity, the middle ground between light and shadow, the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This dimension is the, the dimension of imagination. It is also the area we call the heresy zone. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I love that. All right, our aims. So I'm putting the biggest one, the one I really am after at the top now. Ultimately, our aim is so that we will be able to be aware, to keep stable and to grow. As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, after he talked about unstable people who twist the writings of Paul and the rest of Scripture to their own destruction, Peter then says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so to that end... We want to become familiar with aspects of our earthly history by understanding several of the major heretical movements and moments in, our, in the first five centuries. Uh, we want to reflect on our own day and place in history. And lastly, we want to become equipped to explain to others what we believe and why it is important. So those are our aims. Now, just as a little bit of a side note here, um, I recently just got done with a book called The American Spirit by David McCullough. Um, it's a collection of his speeches. Mer David McCullough is the premier American historian. He wrote a history on George Washington, on James, uh, John Adams, 1776, and so forth. I love what I read from him. And uh, he put these speeches out there at different colleges and venues. And uh, this is from his speech that he gave at Hillsdale College in 2005. And it goes like this. This is part of it. We have to get across the idea that we have to know who we were if we're to know who we are and where we are headed. Here he's talking about history, the value and need for knowing history so we can know who we were and therefore come to know who we are and where we're headed. And he goes on, we've got to teach history and nurture history and encourage history because it's an antidote to the hubris, the arrogance of the present. That's a very C.S. Lewis concept of chronological snobbery, thinking that we're the elites in the moment, and so we know better than everybody before us. I really appreciate his point. We've got to teach history and nurture history and encourage history because it's an antidote to the hubris of the present, the idea that everything we have and everything we do and everything we think is the ultimate, the best. What a great statement. It's kind of my anti-Gnostic statement, but also it's the reason, part of the reason why we're doing this class, the heresy zone, so we can know who we were, so that we can know who we are and where we're headed and so forth. All right, so moving along here, the plan's very simple. We've already talked about what is heresy, how to think about it. Uh, we've talked about Ebionites, Marcion, Docetism, Gnosticism, Mont uh, Montanism. Today we're talking about Arianism. Uh, in the future, we'll do modalism, Manicheanism, Donatists, Nestorianism, and Pelagianism. So today is about Arianism. So we're going to deal with the delineations, 
just like we have in the past, delineations, defining Arianism, discussing modern Arianism, and deliberating on biblical responses. So delineations. As I've said repeatedly, most of the heresies, the various heresies, their answer to our Lord's question, who do you say that I am, will shape how they view many other topics. Uh, last week, uh, the previous week, we saw that uh, that Montanism was a little bit different. It was actually not answering that question. It was actually um, responding to weaknesses it saw in the church. But Arianism that we're going to look at today, Arianism is one of the biggest examples of this. Okay, And so Arianism... Arianism sought to answer the initial question of who do you say that I am, sought to answer that initial question from inside the stream of sophisticated philosophy. I just want to make the case that many of these heresies were culturally conservative for their day. They taught and spoke in ways that would have made sense to the people of their day and what they were used to. And Arianism is truly that way. Um especially in a world of pantheism, and I mean, not pantheism, but polytheism and, uh, and all of that. It just fit into that system. And we'll, I'll try to build that case as we go along. So there's the map of the expansion of Christianity in the first few centuries. You can see how big it was. Most of this is, uh, we're seeing lots of this during the Ukrainian war, uh, part of this map. But, uh, uh, Arius came from Alexandria. It's down at the bottom there in North Egypt. Okay, And then across the Mediterranean is modern-day Turkey. And you can see all those things there. There you go. All right, so Arius was a North African Christian priest from Alexandria. What happened is he came into conflict with his bishop, Alexander, because of his views about Jesus, and it was around, it was at 320 AD. Now, I want you to keep this date in mind. It'll come up in when we get to the last point here. So that started in 320 AD. From that date on, Christianity erupted in controversy over who Jesus is and what we believe about him. There were multiple synods and councils that convened with the bishops going on, uh, going one way and then the other. Now what you need to realize is that this all began in 320. What happened a few years before, like 312, 313 AD? Um, So I'm going to give you a second to think about it. What was so significant that happened around 312? It was the Edict of Milan. Constantine made a declaration that Christianity was no longer an outlawed religion. He didn't make it the official religion, but he declared it was no longer an outlawed religion. So 300 years of pressure from outside, now it's gone, and within a few years, you've got these things beginning to erupt from within. So Arianism specifically. All right, so the next, there was uh, in the conflict that came up, there was all kinds of political intrigue. And I mean, the national politics got involved in this controversy. There was all kinds of political violence. There were people that got exiled, people that got forced into imprisonments and all kinds of aspects. The government got involved. And there's a reason for that, and I'll get to it in a moment. And so it is a really hot and hostile time. And so in the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, they state this, quote, the final victory of orthodoxy came under the emperor Theodosius at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Now do the math. 
from the time that Arianism arose, 320 AD, to the time that it was actually soundly dealt with, firm, <coughs> firmly dealt with in 381, how many years is that? 61 years. Why would it take that long? Because Arianism spoke with whatever, uh, spoke in, uh, uh, spoke in a way and addressed things in a way that was culturally conservative. So it wasn't just theology. It was theology and social, the social aspects and um, mythology and self-perceptions and all these things were wrapped up in Arianism. He spoke, Arius spoke from what was understood and what was acceptable to the larger society. And so then it takes a long time to weed that out because you're not fighting theology, you're fighting theology, sociology, anthropology, psychology, all those aspects, all at the same time. It was a hard, hard battle. I hope that makes sense. Well, moving on. Um, uh, Alison Fitz, uh, Fitzsimmons goes on to say in his book, um, The Cruelty of Heresy, he says, Arius was eager to preserve the unity of the Godhead against the surrounding paganism. So he he was concerned about one primary Christian and Jewish theological concept, the unity of the Godhead, that God is not, there's not multiple, there's not a multiplicity of deities per se. There's God himself is one. And so he takes one biblical doctrine and he over-elevates it and over-emphasizes it, which then creates trouble. And so Fitzsimmons goes on. It was both inappropriate and impossible for God himself to take the bodily form of a man, to be born of a woman, to be hungry and thirsty, to weep, suffer, and to die. Because Arius had taken the first part, the God, uh, the unity of the Godhead, and that, and then like the pagans in many ways, that God Himself, the great God, would not want to dirty His hands with creation and creatureliness. He sounds almost like a Gnostic here, as a matter of fact, because God would not want to dirty His hands with creation. Therefore, it's impossible that Jesus was the great God incarnate. Impossible. That's how he approached it. And so he goes on, Fitzsimmons goes on, Jesus Christ was, according to Arius, an intermediate deity between God and humanity, one who was neither fully God nor fully human. The great God would not dare to dirty his hands with creation, and so he creates this semi-God or this demigod or this in-between God who will go do the dirty work for him, one who was not fully God or fully human. I think Fitzsimmons gets the point. And so then Alistair McGrath in his book, The Heresy, goes on to say this. One of the outcomes of the Arian controversy was the recognition of the futility, even theological illegitimacy, of biblical proof texting. That's one of the things we need to realize is that Arius was drenched in scripture and threw bazillions of verses at the other side and the Orthodox responded with bazillions of verses. They were battling, throwing Bible verses at each other. And so McGrath's point is well taken. Uh, So he goes on to say, Arius's theological position was clearly grounded on biblical texts. Arius chose to interpret, here's the crucial point, Arius chose to interpret these texts in a different manner from his opponents 
in orthodoxy, both sides in the Arian controversy were able to amass texts that seemed to support their case. That's an important point. It was the perspective from which they interpreted the passages that took them in the different directions. And so we need to remember that. That's important. I mean, you can sit down with, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses. They will pile Bible passages upon Bible passages on you, overwhelm you with the Bible. But they're reading them and hearing them from a particular angle and therefore forcing them to fit their perspective. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little experiment. And so the next slide shows Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And I'm going to read it. And I want you to read it and think of it through Arius's eyes. Okay, I think that's going to be an important uh, point here. So here's what Paul says about Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, if you were an Arian, how would you read that passage? What in that passage supports your Arianism? Well, the idea that he's not, the, the statement that he is the image of the invisible God could be, mean he's not God. He's just simply a representation of God. That's how they would have looked at that. The big one is probably the next statement, the firstborn of all creation. When we use the word firstborn, how do we often use it in reference to our kids, our offspring? We use it to usually mean the first one born. And that's usually how it's meant, though not always. But the first one born. So if Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, then in Arius's eyes, he was the first creature created before all, all the rest of creation. He was the very beginning. When time began, <coughs> he was created. There was a time in which he was not, Arius would say, and then there was a time in which he was. He was the first to be created. And then it goes on. That passage goes on. You could see how Arius would interpret all those things. Uh, he's only the has all the fullness of God in him, pleased to dwell in him, but maybe he wasn't God himself and so forth. Let's talk about firstborn, though. Firstborn in Scripture does not always mean the first one born. Very often it means preeminence. So here's an example. Psalm 98, verse 27. Psalm 98. Psalm 98 is unpacking God's promise to David that David would be the firstborn. Remember, David was the last son born in his family. That he would be the firstborn and through him would come the Messiah. And so that was the promise. And so Psalm 89 is unpacking that. And you get down to Psalm 89, 27 and listen to what firstborn means in verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now that's what we call a parallelism. The first and the second lines go together. So what does it mean? Thinking about the second line, what does it mean to say that he is the firstborn? Right, it means he's the highest 
of the kings of the earth. So notice that firstborn has to do with preeminence. So as the Orthodox, when we read Colossians 1, 15-20, we hear firstborn of all creation as preeminent over all creation, not the first one born in creation. And that actually goes with the passage. He is preeminent in all things, the end of verse 18 there. But you can see how an Arian might mistaken this passage or actually misinterpret this passage. I hope that helps as an example of how they did that. Well, the next slide shows some charts, two charts. Um, there's Alexander. That was Arius's bishop. There's Alexander, and, um, and also it'd be Athanasius with him. And then there's Arius. And here's how they saw things. Alexander, the father and the son always existed, and they are distinct from creation. That was Alexander. That's orthodoxy. Arius put it this way. The father has always existed and always been outside of creation, but the Son and creation are part of the same. The Son is a creature, and that's all he is, in a sense. The other uh, chart shows as well, God the Father created God the Son, who uses Holy Spirit in many ways. That's how Arianism looked at those things. If you look at the next slide, you'll see more delineations here. You see it between three statements and then uh, one, two, three, four, four statements. You'll see how Arius put it and how Alexander and Athanasius put it. So Arius would say, uh, what's your belief about Jesus? Arius would say he's semi-divine. Jesus is more than human but less than God. Alexander and Athanasius in orthodoxy said, no, Jesus is fully God. Arius's line of reasoning if the Father begat the Son, then the Son must have had a birth. Thus, God created Jesus. But Alexander and Athanasius would say, no, that would mean there was a time when God the Father was not a father. If there was no Son, he could not have been a father. That means for him to be the Father, that means that the Son of God uh, um, had to always be. If he didn't exist, then the Father was never the Father until he created Jesus. And here's how that works. Uh, the Father and the Son, always existing as Father and Son, that means then that God is always love. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, and the Spirit is that love. We can say with John or 1 John 4, God, or, God is love. But you can only say that because the Father always was the Father and the Son was always the Son and they were always loving one another from before any time began and so forth. But Arianism... You cannot say God has always loved because there was no one for the Father to love. Well, let's go on. So Arius' slogan was, there was a time when he was not. Alexander and Athanasius would say, there was never a time when he was not. Great statement. Finally, what's at stake? Arius would say that belief that Jesus is God violates belief in one God. Notice how he's elevating one biblical truth out of proportion to others. But Alexander and Athanasius would say, believing that Jesus is less than divine turns our worship of Jesus into idolatry and means that you and I are not fully saved for only God can save. It means that God does not love us enough to get, get his hands dirty, so to speak, with creatures and creation. He cannot fully save because only God can save. I hope you find the chart helpful. I really enjoyed that chart. 
Well, moving on here. Again, Alistair McGrath in his book Heresy goes on to state, Arius' concerns were partly apologetic in that he clearly believed that many were being alienated from Christianity on account of its increasing emphasis upon an idea, the Incarnation, that educated Greeks were unable to accept. Arius saw his approach to Christianity in contrast as representing a measured and judicious amalgam of philosophical, sophisticate, philosophical sophistication and responsible biblical exegesis. I find that statement really important. Arius did not like not being liked. Arius uh, was concerned about relevance more than biblical truth. And so he wanted not to alienate the educated Greeks who were unable to accept the Incarnation. One of the ways to put this is that heresy is usually culturally conservative. True Christianity is real progressivism. I mean, you think about the Incarnation. That is a, a moment of shock that God would get involved with creation, become part of creation. That God loves creatures and creation so much he became part of of it willingly. That's huge. Anyways, so Alice McGrath's book, Heresy, I highly recommend that to you. Moving on then. So several writers have noted what McGrath will say. McGrath says this, Aryan Christianity is much closer to Islam than to Orthodox Christianity in relation to its notion of God and its understanding of the religious role of its founder. I think that's exactly right. Um, Islam has a monism. That is, God is one, and there's only one God, and God is one, and there was no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just one, right? Sounds just like Arianism. This is one of the reasons why I would say that Islam is actually a Christian heresy, a light Christian heresy, or a, is lightly a Christian heresy. In fact, Muhammad apparently was influenced by a couple of Christian heretics. Um... But going further, in answering the question, why did so many Roman emperors arise to embrace and use police and judicial and military force to defend Arianism? Which they did. There were several of them, back to back, that forced Arianism down the throats of the Christians. Why was that? And McGrath states, and he's not the only one, quote, both the orthodox doctrine of the identity of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity undermined any such monotheistic political theology. A number of leading theologians have championed the notion that the absolute monotheisms, such as that proposed by Arius, provide a theological foundation for political authoritarianism. That's very perceptive. If God is one and does not get involved in creation... Then he uses demigods, he uses secondary sources only because he will not get dirty with creation. Therefore, and because there's only one God, therefore despotism is okay. Authoritarianism is okay. But if God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all three uh, persons who are one God simultaneously, and if the Son is equal to the Father in power and glory and yet willingly submits to the Father... And if the Spirit is equal to the Son and Father in power and glory, but submits to the Father and Son, then you don't have an authoritarianism. You actually have, in this trinity, you have uh, a sense of 
legitimacy, legitimate authority that is persuasive and filled with love and there's willing submission and all that. It's a, it's a totally different bag. Uh, a guy that's persona non grata in the PCA, um, R.J. Rushduni, wrote about this in the 1970s in his book, The Theological Foundations of Politics or something like that where he makes a strong, strong case that McGrath makes here, that the that the Roman emperors loved Arianism because it actually uh, gave a religious reason for their despotism. Uh, that's huge, I think. So those are the delineations. Um, and we have to think about modern-day Arianism. Where do you see modern Arianism? There's some easy targets and maybe some not so easy. Of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses are the easy target. They are Aryan to the gills. Jesus is just a baby God uh, who didn't come until sometime into history. Um, Jehovah, that's the old German, German, um, German printed name for Yahweh that's then anglicized. Americans don't know how to pronounce German. And so it's actually Yahweh or Yahweh is the only true God and is the great God. And Jesus is a baby God, a second God that he created later. And you see this, for example, uh, interesting enough, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses began with the King James Version. They know how to use the King James Version inside and out. It's rather disarming. But in their own translation, the New World Translation, they do this with John 1. Think about John 1, verse 1. They add only one letter. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That last statement, they add one letter, and the Word was a God. That one letter changes the Bible from one end to the other. It distorts everything. Um, you know, in church history, as there we were arguing about Arianism, the Orthodox came upon uh, a phrase, a statement, a word, homo, H-O-M-O-usias, O-U-S-I-A-S, homoousias, which means same substance. So Jesus is homoousias with the Father, of the same essence or substance as the Father. Well, the Arians, or some of those who were friendly to the Arians, just added one letter. They said, no, no, he's not homoousios, he's homoiousios, H-O-M-O-I-O-U-S-I-A-S. He is similar to the Father. That's what homoiousios means. Don't let anybody shame you about this, that old heresy and how, uh, um, and how we haggled over one letter. One letter makes a huge difference. He was God or he was a God. Big deal. Now, there are other ways that you see Arianism in the modern day. Um, several people in class came up with some different suggestions, um, but you see Arian notions. I think you see Arianism at times showing up in the church um, with um, uh, just normal Christians. Most Christians don't know how to explain or talk about or think about Jesus being fully God and fully man. And sometimes you'll hear them talk in ways that move really, really, really close to Arianism. What I didn't mention in class, uh, but it, historically it's very intriguing to me, that in Presbyterianism in Scotland, there was a time before liberalism took over that there were several Presbyterian theologians and ministers 
who finally were actually disciplined for becoming Arians uh, because they actually came to a point to um, to describe Jesus too much as part of creation to the point that it excluded him being the eternal God. Very sad situation. So there are many different ways you see Arianism in the modern world, um, and I hope that's helpful. And so for biblical responses, there's all kinds of things to say. You know, hold the John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And take it down to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Never let that go. Hold to it tightly. Um, and uh, you could go, go through many, many passages that talk about Jesus being the great God. Think of Titus 2 looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might liberate us from all lawlessness and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works, etc. Lots of passages say that Jesus is Jehovah Jesus. He is Yahweh Jesus. But also, when it comes to things like firstborn, remember Psalm 89, 27. Firstborn, preeminent, not the first in time, but, but the one who is preeminent over all things. Lots of other responses we could say, but hopefully that helps. And I hope you've enjoyed me doing this recording uh, since the class recording didn't work. So next week, good Lord willing, I'm going to do modalism. M-O-D-O, uh, M-O-D-A-L-I-S-M, modalism. That's it for the class. Uh, if you've enjoyed the class, do give me a... Send me an email or something or uh, give a thumbs up when this comes out on, on Facebook and social media. Let me pray with you. Lord God, I pray for all those who listen to this class. I pray that this would really be helpful and insightful for them and they would grow and learn from it, Lord. I pray that you would build them up uh, and all of us would walk with Jesus, always rejoicing that you have been eternally the Father who was who loved eter- the eternal Son with the eternal uh, love and presence of the Spirit, Lord. We thank you that you, who are who are one God, who is simultaneously three persons, that you created us to become uh, into that fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We pray that our hearts would be lifted up with great joy and um, that you would strengthen us all of our days. In Jesus' name, amen.